strikes often in Slovenia at least. There, as a rule, strikes of the privileged state employees, in what sense privileged? They are relatively well paid and they have a stable permanent job. They don't have this precarious anxiety of precariousness, what will happen and so on and so on. Isn't this... uh, Isn't this very sad that what is the symbol of workers' resistance, a strike, becomes a privilege? Usually, podcast guys want to appear to be intellectuals, books. (laughs) You are my ideal. Maybe you are really an intellectual, but wants to cover up this by pretending to be an ordinary guy and so on, <laughs> you, you know. Because a joke when I was young, that the ideal in high school, you know, was to have a learned book, Hegel, Marx, but just the cover inside it's hardcore pornography. <laughs> <laughs> Opposite. No, like uh, outside pornography, so that people say he's a normal guy like us, but inside is Hegel's logic. So, okay, give me instructions. How does this work? Well, uh, you ask me questions or how? I, I was going to ask you questions, but now I just want to pull out all my hardcore pornography to, to prove to you that I'm I'm not an intellectual, that I'm a pseudo-intellectual. But no, but wait a minute. I, uh, these are my old jokes. I use them. But pornography, I think, is, it, I'm not kidding, extremely interesting topic to study because it's, uh, you know, you would have seen, uh, you see everything, you blah, blah, blah. Uh, but it's the most censored think you can imagine. You know that I, okay, you can ask me later if you want, pornography, uh, even with capitalism, commodification, blah, blah. But I think it's not capitalism that, although it's supposed to be like, why if you do what you want, it's maybe the most strictly uh, regulated, you know. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. What, uh, one of the genre. things... Well, one of the first things I was exposed to you uh, from was watching A Pervert's Guide to Cinema. And I actually, I rented that DVD because I thought it was going to literally be about A Pervert's Guide to Cinema. Uh, But then I got a much, a much more intellectual discussion of movies and and history. It was, it was a very, very good film to to start with. Yeah, but I, this is not a bad joke, you know, I never, uh, I never, uh, not, it's not narcissism, arrogance. I never watched any of my perverse guy movies because it's very personal. I hate myself with all my tics and this unclear pronunciation so much on screen, you know. I, it's intolerable for me. Okay, so tell me, how do we do? You ask me question, I answer. Do you have a fixed point? Formula, blah blah. How does it work? You. Uh, it's it's just a conversation. I mean, I I, I did. Okay. I, I I know you have a, a very small amount of time, so I I wanted to go right into. I'm very uh, sorry. Yes, because it's sit here. I have. This is an old joke. Already for half a year, I think. I have all the COVID symptoms without effectively having it. <laughs> it's the other way. No, because now with Omicron, it's fashionable to have. <laughs> asymptomal COVID, no? Mm-hmm. But I don't know how it is with you. Here in Slovenia, something a little bit darker is happening. Usually, the COVID itself, the illness passes in a couple of times, it's nothing, you know. But then effects of so-called long COVID. And yeah. Like people who thought after one week it's over, then they are tired, they get, they get trouble breathing, all that stuff. It, this is the really obscure thing. But listen, the last thing. Uh, first, uh, I talk too much, I need a domina. Okay, you are not a domina, but you know what I mean. <laughs> At any point and so on, otherwise it would be, you know, this is my standard joke. You never read philosophy. You know, no, late dialogues of Plato, you know how they look. 
This is my favorite form of dialogue. One guy, Socrates, talks all the time, mm-hmm. and his partner just says every 10 minutes, quarter of an hour, by Zeus, so it is Socrates. And so forth. <laughs> <laughs> so let's not do that, be brutal. And uh, second thing, this is not live. Oh, it is live. Sorry, if, if I didn't explain that. Yes. Okay, then, okay, I will just be a little bit more careful, you know. Okay. So yeah, yeah, no, 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 no worries at all. There's there's, there's nothing that uh, I don't think we can talk about. Um, and and uh, I'll, I'll try my are best. Are we already to... now, now uh, available to so-called ordinary working classes, or will you put me on or out? Uh, it, it'll what be available. It, I, I, I make it available to everybody. It, uh, ordinary working no, classes. No, no, but what I mean, if it's live, can they see us already Yes, now? yes. Oh, then let's. Okay, then. Sorry, guys. I'm serious now. Philosopher. <laughs> <and> so <on. laughs> okay. No, I'd. They. My audience would probably prefer uh, to have uh, a silly conversation. They. They. they no, like- no, no. But nonetheless, you know. Unfortunately, okay. Let's begin with a serious point. Unf- my point is double here. First, uh, you know, that was already the problem with that movie, uh, which. I'm not saying it's a great movie, mm-hmm. but it makes a good critical point, and it was typically, I think, uh, misread, misinterpreted by the standard liberal left. Don't look up. We've all seen you know? Yeah, yeah. I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Automatically assume that the target are these Trump uh, uh, deniers and so on. No, it's much more subtle. The president, Meryl Streep, she is seen, you remember, in one photo in the background embracing Bill Clinton. Yeah. She's simply democratic, mm-hmm. and what it shows is the, even if you take it seriously, but you don't act on it, act on your, the, the attitude of those in power depicted in the movie is not that of outright denial, conspiracy theories, but precisely the way those who admit it, yeah, yeah, comet is approaching, but deny it in their activity, how they act. And that's what is going on today. I always take this example. You remember, it was horror that uh, a couple of months ago, the Glasgow conference on global warming, They were all saying almost, not quite, the correct thing. Prince Charles comes and says, you know, all those, I find them so suspicious metaphors of time. We are one minute to midnight to break down to noon, blah, blah, blah. But it was all, it was as if, uh, if we talk enough about it, we will not really have to do anything, you know. It's that... uh, Posturing. It's not that you have to deny knowledge. Admitting how bad the situation is uh, works in itself as fetishist denial. You know, like you admit it, you say it, but nothing happens. And here maybe you've seen it or our listeners in some uh, of my texts, I often quote it, an excellent point, which I think today is more true than ever from an early text by George Orwell, 37, I think, where he says the leftists uh, like to talk so much about how we have to change the world, but what they are really afraid is that the world would really change, you know? Like you, especially, I don't know how the situation is in Canada, but uh, I... It's it's very similar. I have... it's a no, lot of pacification. I, mean I have a problem with uh, AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, but when she conditionally supported Biden, all that stuff, blah, blah, I got the point. But some of her critics, I didn't agree with them because they said, no, Biden, capital, blah, blah, uh, he will even worse or the same as uh, Trump. You know what is the problem? Here I agree with my enemy, haha, Chomsky, who said, <laughs> we don't have time to wait for some authentic revolution or whatever. 
the situation ecologically and so on is so catastrophic, you know, that uh, without any illusions, of course, we will be again and again disappointed, but we should just grab whatever we can. That's why I don't like, of course, I don't like opportunists, but I also don't like what I call uh, uh, principled opportunists, you know, this radical leftists who, whatever, of course, you make compromises, you try to do, they say, no, you just work for the capital, this is a, a trick of those in power, not to change things really, and so on, and so on. No, I think, would you agree, the correct thing was, Biden proposed some things which, in spite of all his, I am so critical of Biden, uh, in spite of all his problematic points, would have been good, all those trillions for environment and so on. We should just not so much support him as hold him, how do you put it in English, by his work, you know. Let's Tell see me. if he'll really do it, because he's already making compromises. The other thing where, now I'm instantly provoking you and our public, is... <clears throat> I think we should learn to appreciate state. It's so fashionable today to claim, uh, you know, state is the ultimate enemy by radical left. All authentic politics takes place at a distance from state. But you know who is my source here? This will be probably a surprise in rehabilitation of the state. You know, Alvaro Garcia Linera, I really appreciate him the ex-vice president of Bolivia. He described in a short text wonderfully the situation when, uh, when uh, uh, the pandemic exploded. He said uh, ordinary lives were perturbed. People were losing jobs, uh, uh, companies went broke. International cooperation, we know what happened. Everybody for himself, even... Europe, European Union didn't quite work, blah, blah. So the only thing that we had, there were important local mobilizations and so on. But the only thing we had was state. We expected from the state, you know, to print money, to provide for it. So, uh, yes, state is alienated, blah, blah, blah. But it's nonetheless an apparatus that... If we can use it, we should use it. Don't underestimate it. Second thing, especially I'm here referring to you, and I hope some of your listeners in Vancouver. I love Vancouver, but you know what makes me sad? With my bourgeois sensibilities. Incidentally, my son, who always sarcastically attacks me, you know. Okay. Do you remember in that upper class, downtown, and it's very sad, this isn't the downtown on that island now. Uh, You're talking about the, the downtown east side? Locals, it's like the poorest part of Vancouver. Almost, almost cannot afford to live, no? Yeah. It's the rich people from Japan, South Korea, even China and so on, no? And I remember, maybe you know it, somewhere there in the very center of downtown, there is a small cafeteria called uh, Flying Pig. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And my son... So nicely, I think he said, look that. Uh, there is a cafeteria there whose title is Slavoj on an airplane. <laughs> then I got a flying pig. <laughs> but what I want to say is that how did you survive, or our listeners, if, you are from your, if they are from your area, you remember last summer, you approached almost 50 degrees. Yes. Yeah, we, we, we had hundreds of people died. Yet we need not only state, but even more international cooperation. Because, listen, some of stupid anti-state leftists like to say, no, state manipulates ecological data. The only guy we, persons we can trust are local people, investigating, looking into companies which, uh, which uh, 
ruin um, our environment, which pollute and so on and so on. Yeah, of course, but that's not by far not enough a point. Look at Vancouver. I don't know, but probably, maybe, you are, you, in your area, since the kind of, a, I don't know, liberal city, blah, blah, you are not even probably so bad ecologic. Sorry, I'm still there. Yep, yeah, you're here. I'm there. Yes, yes. I'm sorry because the image is my, yes. So what I want to say is that, no, you shouldn't, as much as you look into your immediate environment there, you will not find the causes of the temperature. The causes are global. It's a global perturbance of how air circulates towards the north. Even in northern Siberia, in the coldest city on the earth, they had 33 degrees Celsius, which is close to 100 in Fahrenheit. So what I'm saying is that this is the proof that, you know, this so popular local approach, you know, like, uh, no, this anarchist vision of we should begin at the local level and then gradually through forms of cooperation go up. Yeah, but we already live in a global universe again, where, for example, what happened in Vancouver? Yes, you had consequences there, but it was an effect of something that went on globally and for which probably, I don't know how the air circulates there, other parts of the world are much more responsible, you know. But just to finish, you know why I like cities like Vancouver? Because we have in Europe this joke, you know, uh, this joke that uh, uh, son asks his father, that why don't they build cities in the countryside where the air is much better, you know? <laughs> Vancouver comes close to me. There are others like Bergen in Norway, such a city, you know, where you are in a city, but not so far. You can see mountains there. Okay. I talk too much. But no, no, no. Okay, my, okay, okay. Um, you I, see I, my point. I will, you know, I will, I will put on my... Global approach, use, global approach, use every, every mean you can. Me, every means necessary. I'll put, I'll put on my, um, my, my Dom outfit for, for, for a couple of questions. I, I, I did want to ask because you're just talking right now about U.S. politics, specifically, the the Biden administration and how, like, you still, like, think, uh, that there are some leftists who think the state isn't necessary, for example. When it comes to the Biden administration, because there are things I would agree with you, he's doing, say, better than Trump, right? Uh, when it comes to the environment. But how does the left in the modern era um, still combat with the fact that it is still a dominant neoliberal ideology? Uh, here, I will give you a totally crazy answer. Okay. Uh, for for which I'm provoking, but seriously. Okay. What neoliberalism? It is clear. I was convinced by my friends, not totally. I have doubts, but nonetheless, Yanis Varoufakis, Jody Dean, and others, that... Uh, First, neoliberalism was up to a point always a myth. It was a notion that the developed countries used to put pressure on poor African countries or, or third world countries, like diminish the state, allow free competition, which means allow our companies to exploit nature. And but if you look closely, what is happening in the last decades my God, the states are really getting stronger and stronger. Not, of course, healthcare and so on. They try to pull out there. But if you look at really successful, in capitalist terms, I'm not trying to sell any leftist ideology here, countries like, think about, I don't know, uh, not so much China as, don't forget others, uh, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, Singapore. This is not liberal capitalism. This is extremely strong role of the state, which uh, 
in a very planned way, selects, okay, we will support these industries, that industries, and so on and so on. And uh, uh, they do something which uh, Western liberal democracies, because of their electoral system, cannot do it. I'm horrified by China. I'm no fan of them. But I met once a Chinese guy, an official guy, who made a point, who told me, listen, with you it's a problem, you just worry about the next two years, four years elections. While we, he was a little bit cynical, he said, ha we know who is in power. <laughs> but precisely that allows us to think in the terms of decades. It's not what will happen in two years. It's what will environment be 30, 40 years from now. Not just to talk about this. We have all those predictions, you know, mm-hmm. in 2050, uh, catastrophe. But no, they, in a wrong way, I don't think it will work, that authoritarian way. But, you know, we will need to establish not a Chinese authoritarian one, but some form of collective decision-making which will not function in this uh, rhythm of every two years you have elections and so on and so on. That is so, that is, that is so important for me. So my first problem with neoliberalism is this one, that we already don't have it. Uh, look, look again what happened with the pandemic. What neoliberalism? I know Trump was cheating. Much money went only to uh, to companies, but nonetheless, state intervened, printing trillions of money and so on. It was the same in Europe. So it's not a second thing. Now I come. You, I'm sure you and your listeners know it. To uh, again, I have doubts with this term but it describes something, the so-called corporate neo-feudalism or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I don't want to jump too quickly there, but what I try to develop in many of my books, I often repeat myself, I call this ecological writing, recycling. (laughs) 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 But what I want to say is that, uh, to put it in orthodox Marxist terms, Marx speaks about the privatization of commons. Commons in the sense of not just woods and forests acceptable, accessible to everybody, but in the sense of the air we breathe, the market, mediums of communication, and so on. Now these commons themselves are privatized, but they remain commons. Like you buy books, more or less soft monopoly by Amazon. We are probably now uh, using some Microsoft or whatever device. So I'm saying, you see the paradox. We experience ourselves as free and so on, but the space in which we, we move is already controlled by a big company, which is then usually, again, controlled or linked to a state, as my good friend Julian Assange put it, I love that, that NS, uh, that uh, Google is really a private counterpart to NSA, to National Security <laughs> Agency. That's a good way of putting it. So what I want to say is that, uh, uh, it's, it's that, uh, that's why, as following some Italian economists, I although that's not my specific topic, I try to develop uh, the, the standard capital, capitalist development was from rent to profit. But now we are, in a way, returning to rent. Look, sorry, my old example. Look somebody at somebody like Bill Gates. Where do his billions come from? He probably pays his workers, I don't know, even relatively well. It's not this. It's that he owns one of our commons, and we are paying him rent, double rent, not just this. Financial and so on, we also allow ourselves to him to collect data about us. 
all this media, especially Facebook, yeah, and, and regulate what information. So this is where we are today. Some people even go so far here, like Yanis Varoufakis, they claim it's no longer capitalism. I wouldn't go so far. I just think that, uh, and I know that this mega corporation still control a relatively small percentage of our production. But I see, nonetheless, a new axis becoming important. On the one hand, these mega corporations which control our commons and we are paying them rent, even in public transport, instead of taxi companies, you get Uber. You know what is so interesting in Uber? It's that uh, workers who work in Uber, Uber uh, are usually own their own means of production. The cars, you have yeah. your own car. If you are a prog- if you are a programmer, you have your own uh, uh, you have your own PC and so on and so on. So you are exploited without social security and so on. But in spontaneous ideology, the system is selling this to you as your extra freedom. They said, you see, you are not a wage worker. You are precarious, which means for them, new freedom. You can, uh, you, you search for contracts here, there. You are a kind of an individual, small entrepreneur. So this is the new constellation. And since now I will make uh, another very provocative move, since you have now in Canada, and it's exploding everywhere, this trackers strike and so on and so on. I don't know how it is with you, but uh, even in my, as Donald Trump would have put it, shithole of a country, Slovenia, although his wife was from here, <laughs> it was so interesting that... Uh, you know who dares to strike in Slovenia? Highly paid state employees. For example, in hospitals, not the nurses, but top paid doctors. They are paid by state. Most hospitals are still public. And they know that they scare the shit out of the people if they go on strike, who will operate me, and so on and so on. So to be in a position to be able to strike, to go on a strike without really threatening your existence, it's a very privileged position here. You know, that's a said that those ordinary people who work in small companies, even big, they don't dare even to think about strike, my God. The boss will tell them, okay, fuck off, no problem. I mean, it's so... uh, this is why I think that strikes often in Slovenia, at least, they are, as a rule, strikes of the privileged state employees. In what sense privilege? They are relatively well paid and they have a stable, permanent job. They don't have this precarious anxiety of precariousness, what will happen, and so on and so on. Isn't this this very sad that what is the symbol of workers' resistance, a strike, becomes a privilege? Yeah. You know, what worries me, even, and I have the same problem with uh, remaining radical leftists, communists, blah, blah, but with working class today. Who is today the working class? It became clear that you have absolutely to include a series of other people, not only precarious workers, who, and this is an ingenious trick, like uh, since uh, you, as a precarious worker, as a small entrepreneur, uh, uh, propose, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, do contracts with a company, it's no longer, it, this prevents any solidarity, more or less, among, at least in my country, among precarious workers. Because you experience the, the company, which you make a contract, 
as kind of a transparent mediator, just an anonymous agency, and you see as competitors other precarious workers. So it prevents uh, uh, solidarity. No? That's the precarious workers should be included. Then, as many good economists from Italy, United States, Bolivia pointed out, you know, Marx knew it, but underestimated this key distinction, distinction sorry, between valorized and non-valorized work. Valorized simply means that you are paid regular wage in this sense that your work produces value. But wasn't it one of the lessons of the pandemic that, that uh, as a good Marxist, I forgot his name, sorry, recently put it, for the capitalist valorization to function, it must be supported by the unpaid, formally not included into capital's circulation, non-valorized work in small uh, stores, uh, your relatives helping you, the wife at home doing the work, and so on and so on. So it's crucial today to include in the overall scheme of exploitation these non-valorized workers and Next thing, some of my ecologically oriented Marxists pointed out, they call this, it's a clumsy term, not, no longer exploitation of work, but more exploitation of existence, of your conditions of existence. You in Canada know, your Trudeau was a little bit of disappointed here, that fracking and so on, basically it goes on, no? <laughs> no. and yeah. so on. Why is this tragic? Because at least I read some reports on how uh, it's really ruining the countryside. Indigenous people who usually live close to those sites, they are not exploited formally. They are not paid, they are just ignored, but their conditions of existence are ruined. And this is no longer marginal today. I know because I have friends there in Ecuador, the previous president, Rafael Correa, uh, was, lost his job precisely because he tries to limit this exploitation of existence. Big companies, mining, ruining uh, environment, and without formally directly exploiting local people, ruining their conditions of existence. And are we aware how many things are happening along these lines today? For example, now people no longer talk about it, but do you remember a couple of years ago, the big topic was Somali pirates? Yes. Yeah, but you know why they exploded? Because uh, international, I mean international, foreign, uh, 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 foreign, uh, fishermen, fishing boats, especially Chinese, one must say this, totally devastated the sea there, leaving no fishes. And the way they survived on the coast was fishing and so on. We, we have to include all this in today's situation. It's no longer this clear image, exploited workers. There are different variations of exploitation and so on and so on. So uh, the second thing I want to say is also that uh, now people often ask me, you must be crazy. What do you think by communism? <laughs> no, I'm giving them a very simple answer. Yes, I know I was a dissident. I was seven years unemployed in 1970s. But uh, my God, uh, listen, I give them... I repeat it, I know, I often say this. A very simple answer. Don't read any communist literature. Just look what the media are telling us, even the official media. We need global cooperation already from the pandemic. Only global cooperation where most people will be, okay, now it's no longer vaccination, but whatever. A global cooperation is needed. Then, 
with uh, global warming and all these natural perturbances, probably tens of millions of people, if not hundreds, will have to move around. This is unthinkable without new forms of global cooperation, and it has to be global. And this is, for me, communism. I, communism is, for me, the shortest definition. A social order which will be able really to do what even the official media are saying that we should do, global cooperation. And so, for example, the big scandal is, and many, sorry for this ironic term, honest capitalists, bourgeois politicians are admitting this. Look, wasn't this a scandal? You know that in Europe now, with Omicron and different rules, we are destroying tens of millions of vaccines because their date of you must... Why didn't we say two months ago, okay, let's quickly send them to Africa, I don't know where, even a bigger scandal, uh, this, how do you call it, uh, copyright license. It should have been free that you can produce, if you can, vaccines without paying for license, and I'm not here preaching some kind of a cheap socialism. Are we aware how many billions our state gave as a help to companies to develop vaccines? So, my God, we should get something back. So, you see, I am not this, oh, non-alienation, paradise on earth. I'm a communist out of despair. I'm asking people just listen to the official media. They're all saying, idiots like Prince Charles are saying this. We need global cooperation, solidarity. I'm saying, okay, but do you seriously think that the existing order, global social political order, will be able to do this? To answer that, can I, can I ask I you can, two, two quick questions about please. that? Um, yes, you were please. mentioning uh, Yanis Varoufakis uh, when it comes to talking about uh, big tech. It's and tech wonderful companies. what you made. Yanis Varoufakis, or whatever you... Is, is, is that, like sorry, it. am I mispronouncing it? No, what no. I found... Uh, I This is my eternal joke, we are friends on him. Yeah. That I claim your first girlfriend must have been called uh, uh, Varu. Why? <laughs> because I claim you Greek are primitive people, and your family name comes from the first girl you fuck, like Varu Fakis. <laughs> <laughs> We are French. We are politically not correct, but we are fanatical feminists, you know. But isn't it wonderful to live in this free, free range where you don't worry about political correctness, but you are extremely sensitive when you really hurt somebody. I'm very sorry. Go on. No, no, not at all. Um, so my question, when you were talking about uh, big tech and you just brought up uh, pharmaceutical industries too, would one of the solutions you think, because I, 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 I know that he recommends this is to make it a public utility is to make companies because there's a very small amount of companies that control all of the technology and the same question would be about the pharmaceutical industry do you think we should nationalize it no uh, not totally okay. here i am uh, it may surprise you but but uh, you know what i am afraid of nationalization without proper social control opens up incredible new spaces of corruption. You know? Mm -hmm. So I, my idea would be a very modest one. For some crazy leftist, I would already have been a traitor now. <laughs> Allow selectively competition, absolutely, but in the terms under conditions determined by states, like for example, we need to produce, we need it. Now, nobody cares, masks. Yeah. COVID masks. Okay, to nationalize it, establish a big company, blah, blah, it would be instant corruption. So, yes, uh, private companies allow them to do it, but under strict control against corruption and so on and so on. I... I this is also why uh, it's although it's our dream, you know. When I said global cooperation, I didn't mean a uh, 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 worldwide state. 
Can you even imagine in today's condition what corruption, secret privileges, and so on, this would, this would involve? So for me, it's, and that makes me very sad, because the bad guys, bad in the sense that it is tough now, yeah. practically no freedom in China. But I agree with what they are trying to do. They have capitalist competition. The problem is that they are admitting now that exploitation is so radical there. You know, when the party said they had to, that they have to prohibit, but they didn't yet. 996 formula. You know, yeah, I thought, yeah, my God, because in my dirty mind, 69 is that double oral <laughs> sex. You know, the Central Party prohibited a certain triple sex practice. No, it means what is common practice in big factories there. Yeah. Uh, 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 you work six days a week from nine, nine to nine. Yeah. 12 hours. 12 hours. Right. And uh, you see, again, we touch today something for which is for me the basic uh, ideological, not even ideological, the way social order functions. This is formally prohibited in China to have such long working hours, but it was an unspoken rule everything for efficiency you tolerate, you know. So uh, the basic, the problem is just how not to do it in a Chinese way. The basic idea of allowing selectively competition, but in socially regulated conditions, you know, where not just against corruption, but also for the common efficiency and so on and so on. So I still think that I'm not a utopian here, that mm. I'm really a pessimist, you know, in long term, that if we will not manage to do this, I, I'm afraid to think what will be with our societies in like 30 years. And it's not my madness. I don't know how it is with you, but in Slovenia, my part of Europe, other countries around, you know that uh, almost the majority thinks this, the birth rate is falling terribly, not because of poverty, but because young people simply think we are approaching a crazy world who wants to have children yeah. in these conditions. You know, it's, 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 uh, I really think that uh, we, the left, should be brutally realist here. Okay. And then I give you your domina with <laughs> another point, another desperate point. You know, uh, many left liberals focus on immigrants, open border. For them, the ultimate example of today's oppression is closed borders. My Opinion here is a little bit more nuanced. Of course, it's scandal what is happening on borders, but the solution is not that all the poor from the third world come to Western Europe here. First problem, what about the causes of immigration? Let's think things will have to be changed at that level. Why is there immigration in Europe? Simply because of all these wars there, which were triggered by the West and other big powers intervening. Without American occupation of Iraq, and I know how horrible Saddam was, there wouldn't have been ISIS and civil war in Syria, and without that, there wouldn't have been this wake of immigrants. Second thing, we are not really getting, I read a wonderful leftist analysis of this, we are not really getting from the third world countries the really poor. Because it's a very complex network of smugglers, around $20 billion is turned around there. Like if you want to immigrate from Syria or Iraq to Western Europe, 
you need to pay for the transport for all that that they then smuggle you from Turkey to Europe. And the cost is usually between five and 10,000 euros. So it's the relatively privileged strata, with some exceptions. But the basic formula is gangsters and the privileged who can afford to emigrate, while the truly poor remain there. There will. Last thing, left liberals in power love immigrants, not too many, because usually, unfortunately, ordinary people often feel threatened by them. And, you know, this is ideal for those in power. You don't have any contact with immigrants, but you can comfortably blame ordinary people. You see, they are the true racist. We are enlightened, open, and so on. Nothing, those in power like nothing more than one lower, one part of the lower classes and another part in conflict, and they can play above all these, these wise, uh, uh, wise, conciliatory, multicultural, whatever, and so on and so on. You know, we will have to do more, more, rad, more radical steps here, and if we will not, no, I'm not an optimist even here. Probably we will not, but then let's at least be aware of what will happen. I, How is I, it? You have problem. Do I exaggerate or not? I follow what's happening. I like the city in Vancouver. You know, How, isn't it now again that the poorer strata, okay, not starving, but poor, are moving out and the island with the beautiful downtown is more and more, I mean, local people less and less can afford to, to live there. Yeah, you know? but it's well, it's a little it's a little complicated because it's not just the the richest people aren't moving out. It's people I'd say in kind of like maybe like millennials who are getting pushed out of the city because they can't start families, they can't afford homes and stuff like that. But yeah, the yeah. extreme poor are still concentrated in the downtown east side, like the people who have extreme really? poverty. I'm yeah, the east side. Yeah, the downtown east side. But that's but that's a very small concentration. It's just it's just like a, a series of like four blocks with extreme poverty and extreme addiction. I, that. I yeah. agree with you. Yeah. Because if you move from the downtown a little bit towards east, a little bit. Then there is a wonderful area with some old uh, street car, uh, car uh, many places. Yeah, but so. they weren't us there. They said, here it's nice, but two blocks further, don't go there. Yeah, yeah. You are right. I, I remember this. You know why I like cities like Vancouver and in United States, screw Seattle. It's not as great as they think. <laughs> Even screw San Francisco. It's no longer what they think. Uh, although there are many right-wingers there. But as a city, I like Portland. Where are you there? It has mega, I forgot the name, maybe the best bookstore in the United States. Yeah. A couple of houses. Yeah. And Port, it's, Portland, Oregon, it's, it's really good. Of less than a million, where you can basically cover the downtown on foot. You know, you just circulate there. I, I love these cities. The only thing I like about New York, Manhattan, is that it's also like that in the sense that it's just a connection of villages. When I stayed there before COVID with my friends around Washington Square, everything was there. Cinemas, bookstores, cafeterias. And for one month, I didn't move out there from the, really <laughs> that's awesome yeah. yeah no that's i i love that city too um could i could i ask you one last question about um yeah, you, you, you you were mentioning uh that a lot of immigration is obviously a result of the u.s involvement in somewhere like iraq right hey here let's also include maybe it's time sorry to interrupt but yeah yeah of course i know what u.s united states are doing but you know we are entering uh, truly a little bit more multicentric era where this is a very dark chapter, but my African friends are telling me what uh, China now is doing in many African countries is a very rough economic neo-colonialism, you know. So it's not just, let's be careful, 
it's still the biggest, maybe trade United States, but also China and other countries are, are, are doing it. Sorry, go on. Yeah, of course. But uh, so whatever country is doing it, I was curious what you think could be done, especially in the United States, to maybe curb back things like the military industrial complex or uh, the U.S. ambition to continue to be like a hegemonic superpower and, and do things like invasions that obviously uh, will displace people and, and create immigration. Uh, this is, uh, you know, there is no easy way out because, and now I tried with my Freudian psychoanalytic friends to develop this, you know, the big, very sad lesson which was true all the time, but now we are feeling its material force, is I absolutely want to resist this cheap mantra. People, especially ordinary people, are victims of their passions. They don't think rationally, whatever. But it is in some sense obviously true that people systematically vote against their own if you put them in primitive way against their own interests. Look what happened under Trump with middle classes. They were the big supporters of Trump and economically they were the big losers and so on. So uh, although I don't underestimate talking about real economic interests, this was the big force of, uh, of uh, Bernie Sanders. You know, like he, he simply didn't go into that bullshit of ideological topics and so on. He simply addressed economic interests. But uh, <coughs> at the same time, this is so tragic, precisely when poverty grows, it's very easy to mobilize people, not against poverty directly, but this basic ideological mechanism where you project into a foreigner or whoever, big capital, uh, the source of poverty, and you mobilize them. I mentioned this in one of my books, this is the most depressive things that happened, not in Slovenia, but in the neighboring country, Croatia, some 10 years ago. Uh, uh, on the one hand, left trade unions tried to organize a big meeting because there was new taxation system, uh, wages were falling, horrible situation for ordinary people. At the same time, nationalist right-wingers organized a big protest against Serb minority that they still, pure nationalism, that they still want to colonize Eastern Croatia. Now, although one would have thought, my good people are half starving, blah, blah. Uh, you know how many people came to the leftist protest? Two, three thousand. You know how many people came to the rightist nationalist protest? Half a million. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, uh, here, uh, I think that uh, the only thing we can do, because, you know, first this, let's not have any illusions. I've experienced this myself. Our media are heavily censored and manipulated. Mm -hmm. Okay, I will be a little bit arrogant. Look what happened to me. You are too young to remember, but 10 years ago, every month or so, New York Times published a poet by me. Then it was even one, two points, Newsweek, then it was uh, other smaller media, but I was there. Now I'm completely prohibited there. I'm completely prohibited even in those, like more to the left, British dailies, like uh, Guardian, Independent, and so on and so on. We... Uh, we, we think, like, of course, formally, you are free to write whatever you want, but our media are so manipulated, censored, and so on, and we should also include this into our fight, like, 
if you ask me for the most horrible text that I read in the last month, it's not some right-wing nuts. It's Zuckerberg Meta Manifesto. <laughs> this is for me a true manifest of neo-feudalism. He proposes a new common space without social contradiction. We all smoothly function there. Yeah, fuck it, but it's owned by him, controlled. Yeah. And you know, all these subtle ways how, ways how you are not even aware of how you are manipulated and so on. So it's crucial for us and through all these podcasts, we are doing it to reach the public and I'm miracles. I Okay, now I will give you a totally desperate answer. Our only hope are miracles, but they happen. Things just explode. I know it was marginal. I know it didn't have effects. Although it was one moment, you remember when was it, six, seven years ago, Occupy Wall Street. Yep. Nobody expected it. Thousands of people there. People say it dissipated. No, as Chomsky, my great enemy, said at some point, without occupying Wall Street, there probably wouldn't have been Bernie Sanders and so on. You know, it's slow, slow, slow process. So second thing, uh, I'm not afraid that nothing will happen. I think we should emphasize this, that... The choice is not between our, in spite of all problems, growing violence and so on, still relatively, I underline this, comfortable life uh, in our Western affluent societies. Like, do you want to ruin this for some crazy communist dreams? No. The welfare capitalism, welfare state, which incidentally, never really existed in this idealized forum. But whatever it was, it is being, it is disintegrating, it is disappearing. So the choice is clear. And my lesson would have been a totally crazy one. Again, what the Chinese are trying to do it, to try to get to our side even some small it's an ironic term, I know. Small shop owners, productive capital, and so on. And to tell them, look, you are suffering. You are even more screwed than us. You know, my, our message to liberals should be, yes, we appreciate great liberal values and so on. My God, it's nice to live in a, at least formally, free country. But... A move to the left is the only way to save what is worth saving in liberty. Clean up your room. Otherwise, Zuckerbergs and others will control our space. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit confused. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I mean, join you again at some point. Yes, because I like, I like, I would so much, I would so much like to come again to. You know why I already liked Vancouver? Once I flew from Toronto to Vancouver, and I like cities where it's not a large countryside. No, there are mountains, and all of a sudden there is Vancouver. And, and beaches it's and everything. really like a city built in a pure, non non uh, uh, I mean, uh, empty uh, countryside on the other other hand, you know what I know about Canada, and I don't love the country any less. Okay, it's one of the symptoms, but still, uh, what not you, you, but Canada was doing with uh, indigenous children, all those horror stories. I didn't learn it now, you know, all those graves they found in Catholic uh, yeah. and so on. But, but I know already for 20, 30 years, and although I have big problems with Trudeau, at least at the beginning, I think at least the parliament nominated some committees which brought out. And you know what I found so horrible? Catholic Church is in our, my city country, Slovenia, 
it's but everywhere else also is the main voice of homophobia. No? And uh, I think that some people are doing, but not enough. Our counterattack should not be, no, we are for uh, gays. Of course we are, but should be, how dare they talk about this? With all the pedophilia and so on, they are it. They are, isn't this such a brutal irony? Those who are the main pedophilia, I mean, uh, 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 they totally too. publicly appear. You know that uh, 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 in Croatia, a friend of mine, a gay person, made a wonderful argument when there was a, a how do you call it, proud parade in Zagreb, capital of Croatia, and the church protested. And this guy said it became so popular in Croatia. He said in an interview that, ah, now I see what, what the church is opposed to, that we are adults screwing each other. They would allow only adults screwing small boys. <laughs> <laughs> what disturbs them, you know. Because uh, I not even a priori against church in Latin America, revolution, the church can play a positive role, but uh, what in many European countries the Catholic Church is doing now, it's simply unimaginable.